The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Turning your Bibles this morning to the text that you just heard read for us by Walter, Revelation 19, 11 through 21. There are two comings of Christ to the earth. The first was a coming of grace. The second will be a coming of glory. The first occurred in meekness, lowliness, and obscurity. The second will occur in power, radiance, and majesty. The first was surrounded by animals, as in a stable. And he was laid in a manger, having been wrapped in swaddling cloths. The second will be surrounded by the mighty armies of heaven. The first was a picture of infinite humility and poverty. The second will be a display of position and authority. The first coming of Christ was announced by an angel to shepherds, proclaiming peace on earth, goodwill, toward those on whom his favor rests. The second will be announced with trumpets of war, with wrath and destruction to his arrogant, wicked enemies. The first, he was like a lamb. The second, he will be like a lion. These images of lion and lamb have been open for us throughout the book of Revelation. In Revelation 5, 5 and 6, we have these words, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. The lion and the lamb. Jonathan Edwards spoke uh, from this text of the amazingly diverse perfections that there are in Christ. The diverse excellencies. How different a lion is from a lamb. Lambs are meek and gentle. They are easily led to the slaughter with quiet bleeding and with wool ready to be sheared. Lions are, are terrifying. They're overpowering creatures. Weighing over 500 pounds sometimes, whose roar can be heard five miles away. Whose teeth can rip you to shreds instantly. Whose paw can strike you to the ground effortlessly. These are different images. Now in the first coming, Christ was like a lamb. He was meek and gentle in his deportment to sick and dying sinners. He was patient and tender-hearted day by day. Quoting Isaiah, Matthew says in Matthew 12, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. This is a, a picture of his gentle dealing with sinners. We are like bruised reeds, and he doesn't break us. He's very gentle with us. We are like smoldering wicks. There is a, a work of grace in us, and there's also a smoldering through indwelling sin. We are mixed. And he doesn't snuff out that, that spark of grace that he's lit in us. He's able to fan it into a flame till it's a bonfire of righteousness. That's Christ. He's meek and patient and tenderhearted. His most powerful self-description comes in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, where he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And here it is. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As far as I can tell, it's the only description where he puts adjectives to himself, describes himself. I am gentle. I am humble in heart. I am a king whose yoke is easy. And if you'll take your, your stubborn neck and, and bow and put it under my yoke, you'll find that it's easy and my burden is light. That's the nature of King Jesus. His most powerful action in his first coming was dying on the cross. Dying like a lamb. As Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Now, at the time when I was preaching through Revelation, came to the lion and the lamb passage and in Revelation 5, I wondered why it is we don't see the word lion again ascribed to Jesus. He's just lamb, lamb, lamb. Even the phrase, the wrath of the lamb, which we have in Revelation 6, it's a bit odd. And I, and I marveled, and I don't know for certain why he's never a call, again called lion, but I think it's because the book of Revelation is written for us. And to us, he's always a lamb. He's always lamb, never lion. Except on our behalf, he's a lion. And also, I think over 20 centuries of church history with the advance of the gospel, you see how lamb-like he is even to unbelievers. Very patient with them. Very forgiving of their blasphemies. Very forgiving of the hard words they've spoken against him. I believe there's no human being in history that has been so slandered as Jesus Christ. And, and he says amazingly in the passage about the uh, blasphemy against the Spirit. He says, I tell you that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. You see how gracious he is. He is not vindictive. He has not for 20 centuries been vindictive against people who hated him and denigrated him and opposed him and fought him every step of the way. Instead, he has st stood all day representing his heavenly father as the father of the prodigal son. But it's been Christ who stood there all day long. I've held my hands out to a disobedient and obstinate people. Romans 10, 21, saying again and again, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. That's Jesus for 20 centuries. Even Saul, breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples the day he was converted. He had a vision of the resurrected, glorified Christ on the road to Damascus. And instead of the terrifying image we have here that I preach on today in Revelation 19, instead that gracious, glorious Savior, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me. Now get up and go into the city. You'll be told what you must do. Saul never got over that vision. All he wanted to do was see it again. He just, all his life in Philippians 3, he says, all I want is to know Christ. I just want to know him. I want to know that one that appeared to me in radiant glory because I think he sensed more and more as he went on in sanctification how much he deserved to be struck dead that morning. Instead, Jesus was a lamb to him. Very gentle. And forgave him. But someday, dear friends, all that is going to end. All of that is going to end. At the second coming, Christ's terrifying wrath will be on full display. 
He will be a lion on that day to his enemies. He's going to roar like a lion. And he's going to rise up and he's going to defend his people. He's going to fight for them. He's going to defend his bride that day. And he's going to rip apart his enemies with no mercy, none. As it says in Joel 3.16, the Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and sky will tremble. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. So we can say plainly, Jesus Christ is a sweet and gentle Savior, but this morning we're going to see what a terrifying enemy he will be at the end of the world. At the second coming of Christ, we will see a promise fulfilled. Jesus promised to come back. He promised himself, and through his messengers, he promised that he would come back. It's discussed again and again and again, the second coming of Christ. So as we come this morning to Revelation 19, 11 through 21, we're coming to the account of the terrifying second coming of Christ. That's what we're looking at. And in this, it's the fulfillment of the promise, a promise he made to us, to the church. Christ's names are revealed in the context of his promises to his people. Look at verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. You see that? Faithful and true. He's faithful to his promises. He made a promise to come back. And he's going to keep that promise. He is true to that promise. He's faithful and true to come back and keep that promise. He's not a liar. He's not a promise breaker. Now there are so many promises of the second coming. I could multiply them. For me, one of the most powerful is there at the beginning of the book of Acts. Remember how Jesus died on the cross as a bloody atonement for sinners like you and me. But God raised him from the dead on the third day. And after his resurrection, he appeared over a period of 40 days to his disciples to train them. And he taught them many things about the kingdom of God from the scriptures. So when they met together, it says in Acts 1, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up from their sight, and a cloud hid him. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So those are his final marching orders. You'll be my witnesses by the power of the Holy Spirit to the ends of the earth. And then the angels came and said... And he's going to come back when that work is done. When that work is finished, he's going to come back. Jesus himself promised the second coming many times. Very famously in John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. And take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. 
Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We're going to him by faith, but someday he's going to come back and take us to be with him forever, he said. Or he says in Matthew 16, 27, the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Matthew 24, 27, as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. He's going to come like lightning across the sky. In the summer after I graduated from, from college, from MIT, I, I crossed the country with a friend of mine who was taking a, a job in the aerospace in, industry in L.A., and so we, we, we rode together, and we had, a, we had a great time. I had a job waiting for me when I got done with that trip, and we just had, we had fun. And we went to all these places, Yellowstone, all this, and... But I'll never forget driving across this, this, this long highway in, in Montana. Big sky country, they call it. Well, I, I think, why is the sky bigger in Montana than it is in Massachusetts? But it is. I don't know what it is, but it's just bigger sky there. And, and it was just long valley. And, and there was an electrical storm such as I have never seen in my life. And these massive, massive clouds... Just incredible. You know what I'm talking about. I, I call them second coming clouds. All right? They're the clouds that you see and they're, they're, they're lit up by the lightning and, and it flashed. And, and it was so obvious and big and visible. And I just said, glory. Just awesome. And that's what Jesus said. As lightning that flashes in the east is visible in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It says a few verses later in Matthew 24, 30, At that time the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. It's a clear prediction of the second coming of Christ. And he says it's going to be like the, the days of Noah uh, because the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage right up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they had no idea about what was going to come. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Predicting clearly in Matthew 24 the second coming of Christ. And then in the sheep and the goat statement, you remember that? He says that that whole thing has begun with these words. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered together as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Second coming of Christ. He even predicted it on trial for his life. You remember? He was there before Annas and Caiaphas, these Jewish leaders that hated him and been conspiring to kill him. And now they had arrested him and they're ready to kill him. But the false witnesses couldn't get their stories together. And it was frustrating and it was difficult. So finally the, the high priest stands up. He says, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said, I am. Brings goosebumps. That's God's name. He just says, I am. And then predicting Daniel, he said, in the future, you will see the Son of Man coming in the, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes. He could not believe it. And that's what condemned him to death, the prediction of his own second coming in glory. So Jesus is depicted here as faithful and true. He promised he would do this. And he is going to do it. Earlier in the same book in Revelation 1-7, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. 
and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all nations, all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Revelation 1-7. Now, the context of the second coming is a final battle. So we're putting pieces together. Eschatology, the study of the end of the world, is, is like a big jigsaw puzzle. And you get pieces here, pieces there, and you're fitting together. And the book of Revelation is like that. So let's not forget what we learned. There's going to be a massive final battle. And that, it is into that that Jesus comes back. There's a context. Something's, something's going on on earth that motivates him, to put it mildly, to come from heaven to earth and end human history. And so you see it right in our text. Look at verse 19. He says, Then I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, the one world ruler that we've talked about, the beast, who's in charge of that final empire, the beast, and the kings of the earth, they're subordinate to him, and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and against his army. So that's the context. It's the battle that's going on. Verse 19. Now this gathering of these armies is clear. Uh, they've come from all over the world. They're assembled under the authority of the Antichrist, the beast, the empire. Uh, their purpose is to make war on Christ and his army, though I do not believe they thought that he would be fighting Christ. they would be fighting Christ directly. They didn't think this was going to happen, the second coming. They did not anticipate a warrior from heaven with a heavenly army coming down, descending. Bring down your warriors, O Lord, it says in the book of Joel. We'll get to that in a minute. They didn't expect that. So they're coming together. I think they're coming together for a genocide. They're coming together to wipe the, what's left of the people of God, the Jews, from, the planet, from planet Earth. Genocide. Centered in a location, and they're in Palestine, Armageddon. We'll get to that in a moment. By now, I believe that God has taken away the blindness from the Jewish hearts. He's going to remove that veil that's hid their eyes from seeing Christ in these prophecies. He's going to take away the heart of stone and he's going to give them a heart of flesh and they're going to turn and so all Israel will be saved. It says in Romans 11. I think that's already happened by now. And so they are there and they have refused to bow down to the beast. They have refused to receive the mark of the beast on their forehead or on their hand. They have not played along. They have refused to worship the idol, and so they're the enemy. And so back in Revelation 16, you can look at it if you want to, or just listen, 12 through 16, it says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs, and they came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. See that? They're deceptive demons that go out and trick people and fool people to assemble under the Antichrist to fight Jesus and his people. That's what it says. And in verse 16 it says, Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon place there in Palestine. So the Antichrist worldwide kingdom is made up of lesser kings who give their power to him. He is therefore a much infinitely lesser version of a king of kings and lord of lords, the Antichrist. 
Revelation 17 speaks of these lesser kings and their desire to assemble and fight for the Antichrist in his efforts to wipe out all of God's people. So look to the next chapter, Revelation 17, 12 through 14. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb. I love this verse. But the lamb will overcome them because he is king of kings and lord of lords. In other words, they're going to fight, but they're going to lose. <laughs> Why? Because Jesus is omnipotent. He doesn't lose ever. And so they're going to fight him, but they're going to lose. And with him, it says, will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. So the Antichrist gives the order. His henchmen come. The demons go out. There's a supernatural side of this. They're doing signs and wonders, deceiving signs and wonders. People are tricked. They're allured. And they come. They're being gathered. Behind the scenes, therefore, we have the dragon, Satan. Satan's bitter hatred for the people of God, his desire for the genocide. He's been trying to do this throughout redemptive history, slaughter the Jews. Now he gets to do it, so he thinks, especially now, especially now that they love Jesus. Especially now that they found in Jesus the son of David, the son of God. So he especially wants to kill them there. And we saw this in Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman. I think Israel is a good interpretation for the woman. And went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Those who obey the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So behind the scenes we must see the dragon, Satan. And then demons, lying demons. But ultimately, it's not them that's moving everyone to come together for this one place. It's not Satan. It's not the demons. It's not the beast, the Antichrist. It's not the kings who are bringing all of their... It's not all... It's God. God is assembling them together to slaughter them. That's what's going on here. The real mover here is Almighty God. He is gathering all of Christ's enemies into one place for that one final battle. They think they're going to put an end to Israel to destroy the people of God, but they are not going to. God is actually gathering them to slaughter them. Now I'm going to ask that you put something here in Revelation 19 and go back to Joel. And I just believe that this is predicted plainly in the book of Joel. Right now I'm doing scripture memorization in the book of Joel. I'm in my hundred days. I say the, the, this book every day. So I basically am living in the battle of Armageddon every day. <laughs> every single day I read this account. Joel 3, 9 through 17. These words have not yet been fulfilled in Israel's history. There's nothing, there's nothing like this that's ever happened. So what is this? This is, the, this is the end. Predicted by Joel. And by the way, don't be surprised it's in a minor prophet like Joel because... Peter quoted Joel for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Joel 2. So there in Joel 3, we've got a prediction of the final battle. Look at verses 9 and following. Joel 3, 9 through 17. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let, the, let all the fighting men draw near and attack. So there's that proclamation to gather that Revelation 16 talks about with the demons, the, the frogs that go out. Gather them together. Verse 10. Beat your plowshares into swords 
and your pruning hooks into spears. That's the opposite of the verse you usually hear. Let's get ready for war. Let the weakling say, I am strong. <laughs> I love that verse. He's still a weakling, but let him say he's strong. He can fight. He's ready to go. Verse 11, come quickly all you nations from every side and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Isn't that awesome? That's exactly what's described in Revelation 19. Let them assemble and bring down the army, O Lord. Bring them down, the warriors. Verse 12, let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. That means the Lord judges. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Verse 13 we saw in Revelation 14. Swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people. Do you see that? A stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. It's powerful. It's predicted. This whole thing's predicted. Go back to Revelation 19. This is exactly what Joel said would happen. The immediate context of the second coming then uh, is clear. The seven bowls have been poured out. The world is in, in, in its death throes. The oceans have turned to blood. Every living thing in them has died. The fresh water has turned to blood. The sun's heat has greatly increased. The scorching the people like fire. By now I think the darkness has passed. Because you can't do anything in that kind of darkness. It was just a short time, I think, but it's over. The Euphrates River is opened up, parted, letting these kings of the east come to die. They are motivated by Satan's hatred for God and his people. They're motivated. Antichrist is motivated by his own prideful rage that these, this remnant will not bow down to him and worship him. That arrogance that reaches to heaven. And they assemble in Palestine and they assume it's going to be an easy battle. Oh, it's going to be a very easy battle. It's going to be the easiest battle in history. But not the way they think. Why would they think it's an easy battle? These are, these are a small number of people that have no military strength at all. They're going to be easy to wipe out, so they believe. But as they assemble to slaughter God's people, the heavens open and this is what we see. So look at verse 11. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and makes war. Heaven stands open. At the baptism of Jesus, the heavens were ripped open and a dove came down. This time you get the feeling the heavens will be ripped open. It isn't a dove that's coming down. Not this time. And so the heavens are opened. And, and we get here the final act of God's right to, I hate to even use this word, his right to interfere with planet earth. His right to get involved in human history. He has that right. He's the king. And it says he's riding on a white horse. It's a clear contrast to his entry into Jerusalem the week before he was crucified. There he rides on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's meek and humble, Zechariah told us. It's a picture of humility when you're riding on a donkey. What do I know? I don't ride horses or donkeys. But I get the picture donkeys are a lot lower. Easy to knock somebody off a donkey. I'm not riding a donkey into battle. 
I'm not riding anything in a battle, but anyway, I, I'm not riding a donkey if I'm going to ride something, but a horse is, you know, it's a massive, I mean, think about heavy cavalry and how hard that would be to stop. And so there's a picture of power here. That entry was about peace and humility. This is about war. He's here to wage war. Now, many commentators say that this horse is symbolic. You horse lovers are hoping it's not symbolic. You'd like to see Jesus literally on a horse. I don't know that we would have any, any way of saying whether it's symbolic or not. It doesn't matter. It seems like just like the sword coming out of the mouth, it's symbolic. But whether symbolic or not, there's a sense of awesome military power here. And it's called faithful, true, faithful and true, as we've already noted. He's keeping his promise. And, and his justice is focused on here. His overwhelming, perfect justice. It is absolutely right what he's about to do. Now we have the justice of Jesus depicted in Isaiah 11, 3 through 5. It says of him, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with justice he will judge the needy. With justice and righteousness he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Now it's easy for us as sinful human beings when we read Revelation 19. That's just simple carnage. That's, I mean, if you look at the details, we're talking about abs- an absolute bloodbath. And we are queasy about that. We pull back. We, we start to car- charge God with injustice. Like when, when Joshua enters Jericho and they, and they kill everybody. Men, women, children, infants, everybody. And, and people have a hard time with that. They, they, they think, it's, and we, want, we don't want that kind of bloodbath. But this is what the, the text says. Here the perfect righteousness and justice of God is on display. These are wicked warriors who are assembling to slaughter the innocent. And verse 12 says he has eyes of blazing fire. It's a picture of perfect holiness. Of Habakkuk 1.13 it says of God his eyes are too pure to look on evil. He cannot tolerate wrong. He sees everything. His eyes are pure. He sees everything and everybody. I think about what it says in Proverbs 20 and verse 8. When a king sits on his throne to judge, he winnows out all evil with his eyes. It's a powerful verse, isn't it? So he's just, he's judging and he can sift out everything and burn up the chaff. That's what he's able to do. And it says in verse 12, on his head are many crowns. Like that great hymn, don't you love it? Crown him with many crowns. A lamb upon his throne. But this is the, the lion upon his horse and, and he, is, he is crowned with many crowns and this pictures his authority, his right to judge. He is the king of every nation. He's the king of the universe. And I love this, verse 12. We'll circle back to this at the end of the message. But it says, he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. It's a powerful verse. I thought a lot about that. My initial reaction is, John, why did you tell us then? <laughs> Why would you tell us, by the way, he has a name written on and, he, and no one knows it. I don't know it. But I just want you to know it has a name that only he knows. Years ago, a missions professor, a beloved man, Christy Wilson, came up to me and told me. He had been at a missions conference. He said, Andy, someone was there who knew you. He said to say hello. I said, really, who was it? He said, I don't, I don't know. I don't remember. But he just said to say hello. I was like, I don't know what to do with that. Thank you. So you look in verse 12 and you're like, why did you tell us? But the more I thought about it, the more powerful. Jesus wants you to know you don't know everything about him. That's why. 
He has a name that he calls himself and you don't know anything about it. Now I don't know that it's necessarily true that we won't ever know about it. I think in heaven we'll be learning Jesus forever. We have a lot to learn about Jesus. So that's what I get out of verse 12. He has a name written. But there are actually other names here in this very passage we're studying that he has told us. So there's just some names written on him that he wants us to know. Like King of Kings and Lord of Lords or Word of God. Those names we know. But this one we don't know and he's not telling us. And verse 13, he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. This is not his atoning blood. That, that, the time for that is over. This is the blood of carnage. This is the blood of his enemies. This is the blood of Isaiah 63 where Jesus is depicted in prophetic perspective trampling the grapes of the wickedness of Edom. Remember when I preached in Isaiah 63, it says, Who is this coming from Edom with his garment stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, he says, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red? Like those of one treading the winepress. Answer, I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger. I trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and the year of my redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm worked salvation for me and my own righteousness sustained me. My wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. Isaiah 63, 1 through 6, no doubt about it, talking about the second coming of Christ. So his garments are spattered in blood. Now you may say, why is there blood in his garments before the final battle? Can I tell you something? This is Jesus' final battle. It's not his first battle. The wrath of God is being revealed right now against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. He already has blood on his garments. He's been doing this for 20 centuries, but this is the final battle now. And his Name is revealed, as I said in verse 13, the Word of God. This is Jesus. There's no doubt about it. In the beginning, John 1.1 1, 1 was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory of the only begotten for the Father, from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's Jesus Christ. The law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. There's no doubt about it. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ, the Word of God. And why does he say word of God? It's because by his word he created the heavens. And by his word he saved his people. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. By his word, by this word you're saved. If you'll just repent repent and believe of your sins, by the word you're saved. But by his word his enemies will be slaughtered. It's powerful. And the armies of heaven are riding with him. Look at verse 14. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. This is an image of perfect holiness. These are, I believe, all of the, all of the, the, the angels, 100 million angels, and all of the redeemed that there's ever been. And they're dressed in holiness, language of, or, or garb of holiness. And he says that he's going to come when the Son of Man comes and all his angels with him. He's going to come with the angels. He's going to come with the redeemed. They're all there. But as far as I read here, none of them seem to be armed. At least this much I can say, none of them are depicted in this chapter as fighting at all. 
So if you look at the casualty list at the end, it's going to be like whatever to zero. All right? <laughs> it's just whatever, a big number to zero at the end of this battle. We are just going to be there, friends. We will be there. And we're going to watch. And we're just there as witnesses. We're not there. We don't need to do any fighting. Just stand back and watch what I'm going to do. So there they are, the armies of heaven. And there's this sword coming out of Jesus' mouth in verse 15. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. This is symbolic of the power of the word of God, this double-edged sword. This is the most devastatingly powerful weapon there's ever been in human history. Far more powerful than any thermonuclear bomb. Far more powerful than any weapon there's ever been conceived. It's really pretty simple. Jesus looks at his enemies and says, be dead. Be dead. And they're dead. You think about the the sharp double-edged sword. The word of God is like a sharp double-edged sword. And it just cuts right through. I mean, nothing slows it down. It's not, as he goes like this, it just goes through easily. You remember when Jesus was arrested in John 18 and, and maybe 600 Roman soldiers are there and, and Judas is there filled with the, the, the devil and, the, and Jesus goes out to them. He's not afraid. He goes out and says, who are you looking for? And they cite their marching orders, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am. And they drew back and fell to the ground. And Judas fell, with, Satan fell on the ground in front of Jesus, just says, I am. And they all fall down. So that's a picture. It says in 2 Thessalonians 2.8 that the lawless one, the Antichrist, Jesus will destroy with the breath of his mouth. As we did before. (gasps) Dead. And with the glory, the splendor of his coming. It's just that easy. It's effortless. And he quotes Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the kings... Uh, the, the kingdoms plot in vain. The, the rulers of the earth gather together and, the, and, the, and the, their rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, let us break off their chains and throw off their fetters. The one in heaven laughs at them. Then he terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And he says, this inter-Trinitarian conversation, the father, Psalm 2, says to the son, ask of me, And I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. That's what John quotes here, Psalm 2. Verse 15, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Jonathan Edwards never got over that verse. That was the, the text that he used, among others, to portray the wrath of God in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The KJV of this verse is, He treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Edward said this, the words are exceeding terrible. If it had only been said that wrath of God, the wrath of God, the words would have implied that which is infinitely dreadful. But tis not only said so, but the fierceness and wrath of God, the fury of God, the fierceness of Jehovah. Oh, how dreadful must that be? Who can utter or conceive what such expressions carry in them? But it is not only said so, but the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. As though there would be a very great manifestation of His almighty power. In what fierceness, the fierceness of His wrath should inflict. As though omnipotence itself 
should be, as it were, enraged and excited as men tend to exert their strength when they're roused up in anger. What, what will become of the poor worms that shall suffer it? Whose hands can be strong in the face of it? Whose heart shall endure? To what a dreadful, inexpressible, inconceivable depth of misery must that poor creature be sunk who shall be the subject of this. He treads the fury, the fierceness, the winepress of wrath of Almighty God. It's like a, a stacking of phrases that give us a sense of how terrifying that is. In verse 16 it says, And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the true King of Kings. The Antichrist is an imposter. His time is done. Jesus is the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you know who the kings are? Lowercase k and lowercase lords l. That's us. We're going to rule under him forever. How sweet is that? The saints, we're going to inherit the earth. And we will rule under him. And he will be our king. The king of kings and the lord of lords. Well, in verse 17 and 18, we see these carrion birds summoned. I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. This is summoning to birds, uh, carrion birds, vultures. And it's done by an angel standing in the sun. As I said, I think by now the darkness has passed, but this angel goes up mid-heaven, and he, it's like he blocks the... the the sun like an eclipse with his mighty power and he summons these birds. Come together, all birds, for the great supper of God. Human bodies are God's direct work. He knit your body together in your mother's womb. He gave you your blood. He gave you your kidneys. He gave you your lungs. He is sustaining you right now. His organ, the, your organs are really gifts from him. Your blood that flows, it's a gift from him. But God is going to rip apart the bodies of those wicked warriors on that battlefield. He's going to rip, rip apart their, their bodies and it will be a bloodbath. And, and look at the levels everywhere. Kings, generals, mighty men, all people, slave or free. This is a vast slaughter. And it reminds us of Jesus' ominous words in Matthew 24, 28. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. So he's told us that too in Matthew 24. Well, at the end here, Christ conquers all of his enemies. Look at verse 19 and 20. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gather together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. As we said, verse 20, but the beast was captured. And with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. And with these signs he had deluded those who received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. And the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So this would be a quick battle. The opposing general is captured quickly and thrown into hell. So also the false prophet. And then he slaughters the rest of them. In verse 21, with the sword that came out of his mouth. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all of the birds gorged themselves in the flesh. That is the account in Revelation 19 of the second coming of Christ. It's terrifying. Terrifying. Terrifying carnage. What application can we take from this? I think it's obvious that I as a preacher of the gospel want to beg you now in the day of salvation to flee to the Lamb 
flee to the Lamb, this gentle, meek, humble Savior who's saying, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Stop fighting me. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Yield to my kingly rule. Don't fight me anymore. But find in me a gentle, humble, tender-hearted Savior. God gave him as a propitiation through his blood for anyone who believes. All you have to do is trust in him. You don't have to get up. You don't have to walk anywhere. You just have to hear the gospel that Jesus is the Son of God, died on the cross for sinners, and that all you need to do is trust in Him. You don't have to. You must not do any works, good works, to pay for your sins. Just trust in Jesus and you'll be forgiven. And at that point, you will be with Him on that final day, dressed in a white robe of righteousness that you don't deserve. Come to Christ. Secondly, ponder the fact that Jesus has a name written on him that only he knows. I just want you to anticipate what kind of an education you're going to get in heaven. When, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've still got things to learn about Jesus. That's exciting to me. And I look forward to that. Jesus has aspects to his personality you don't know. This account that I've just read may be one of them. You may have a hard time seeing Jesus like this. Jesus is like this. And so let's ponder the greatness of Christ and just yearn to follow him. And let us as believers be ready for the second coming. He hasn't told us exactly when it's going to be. He told a series of illustrations about a master, a king that goes away. There's a lot of parables about this. The master, the king, the ruler goes away and trusts some things and then he comes back. You need to be ready for him to come back all the time. Be ready all the time. For him to come back. Be busy doing what he wants you to do. That includes the two journeys. Internal journey of holiness. It says in 1 John 3. That when we see him. We will be like him. For we will see him as he is. We're going to be instantly transformed. Everyone who has that hope in him. Purifies himself as he is pure. Holiness. We're also told to share the gospel. I prayed for workplace evangelism. Let's do some workplace evangelism this week. Let's talk about the second coming of Christ. Let's warn some people who are not ready for it. I want to close with this. Uh, when I was a missionary in Japan years ago, I would travel every, every week from Tokushima to Takamatsu. And um, it was a wearying trip and I, I taught English classes and taught Bible. Japan's a hard place to work. People don't, they're, they're very respectful, very kind, but they don't repent. They don't come to Christ. And so it was, I was weary. I remember that. And I got off the train and I was walking to the place where I was going to do the English class. And, and I looked up and it was just like that sky in Montana. It was one of those dramatic electrical storm skies. And I just was walking down the street and I was thinking about it is well with my soul, the final verse. And Lord, haste the day when our faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back. As a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Close with me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the truth that the scripture tells us of the future. We wouldn't have any way to know that this is coming. Except that you've told us. Christianity is different than any other religion in the world. In this issue of prophecy. But you've told us that you're coming. And you've told us to get ready, to be busy, to to be occupied until you return. Help us to be filled with the Spirit. I pray for any that walked in here as unbelievers, that they would flee the wrath to come 
and find salvation in the Lamb of God. Help all of us, O oh Lord, to be faithful, to be diligent, to be holy, to put sin to death, and to warn our neighbors and our co-workers and our unsaved relatives and total strangers here in Durham to flee to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.